You got something a little different today. And um, any of you who have been here for a while, but those of you who are here for the first time are, are just getting started with the effect. The hallmark of the effect are two things. It's approaching Jesus from a first century Hebrew Aramaic point of view. As soon as you do that and you move into that context, everything changes about the message. It moves from a legal viewpoint into a relational viewpoint and it makes such a difference. But connected and part of and, and part and parcel to that is that we are a contemplative church. And I know that word has bad connotations in, in some conservative Christian circles. But by that we mean simply that we can't know God through our intellect. We can't understand God. We're not going to be able to get a definition of God that is going to take us through all the vicissitudes of life, all the changes, everything that goes on. But what we can do is that we can have an experiential journey that in a nonverbal, non-rational way will bring us into God's presence. And in that presence, when everything else is quieted down, in that stillness, in that solitude, we will be convinced of something that is deeper than words can go. That's what contemplation is all about. That's what contemplatives are. That's what mystics are. Mystics are kind of contemplatives on steroids. Okay? They are all that I just talked about, but with such ecstatic experiences that it changes their, their viewpoint even more radically. Trying to understand the words of contemplatives and mystics as they try to express what is essentially inexpressible, their experiences with their God, is trying to decipher literally like, like Chinese characters. It, it is difficult to, to understand what they're trying to get across until you've had the experience yourself. And once you've begun to have the experiences, suddenly everything comes alive and it becomes intelligible. Even if it's not the way you would have expressed it, even if the expression of it from another contemplative isn't your experience, you see the truth behind it. And so what we've been doing over the last few months uh, going into last year is that we went through a series of historical Christian mystics, the ones that stand head and shoulders above the rest in terms of doing exactly what we're talking about, and, and wrote about it and left a, a tradition behind them. Because there are things that we can understand about their lives that directly apply to ours. So this isn't just a look through some historical looking glass to see some figure removed from us in space and time, but actually a way that way through, a way of living life. What circumstances in their lives caused them to move this radical direction toward God? Even in the face of all the odds, even in the face of persecution or whatever was going on in their time frame. And then... How did they go through this process? What was their unique way of approaching their God? And how did they express it? And then what can we learn and how can we apply? So we've been through such figures as Francis of Assisi, Catherine of Siena, uh, Julian of Norwich, and Thomas Merton. And we also did Meister Eckhart. And each one, there was a different person who took each one of those figures, and three of them got so into the part that they dressed up <laughs> and they presented in first person as if they were. You know, Frank did Francis of Assisi, um, Nina did Julian of Norwich, and what we would like to do this morning is introduce to you Meister Eckhart in a very different sort of way. Mr. Eckhart, Meister, would you join us now, please?
Well, everybody, I am indeed not Meister Eckhart. I've come and visited you. Um, I was born in uh, actually the year 1260, and at that time my name was nothing like Meister Eckhart. Uh, I was born in uh, a small town there, and my name was actually Eckhart von Hochheim. Sounds German. You also, Johannes was a name I, I went by. But um, you know, later when I got uh, my, my fancy degrees and things of this sort, they would call me Meister, and so the name stuck. I just want you to know that really wasn't my first name. Um, I was known to be a famous preacher. I was a scholar. I was a mystic, as Dave said. And I had a real passion to reach the people. I started out, and I'll explain my history, and I'll explain the times, but uh, I really had a, a passion to reach the people. And as Dave said, it is difficult to explain what mystical teaching is. And it was even more difficult because the language at the time in many uh, of the scholastic circles was Latin. So I'm talking to people you know, in Latin, my colleagues and my scholarly people, and yet, you know, here's the people, the merchants, the peasants, uh, the knights, the, just the people. Well, they spoke German, and there weren't even words that existed that um, could explain mysticism. Much like it's difficult today, it was even more difficult today uh, then. Um, I couldn't help but as I was sitting in the back listening to that beautiful song, It Is Well With My Soul, and that really was one of the things I wanted to do, is get people to feel that all was well with their soul, to really have that sit, to not have it as being an intellectual experience. Um, Marion spoke of the community and the love, and that's, again, something that, you know, wanted to push for. And Dave spoke about being close to God. And, again, I want to cover that. So a lot of these topics are going to tie um, together. Um, I will say that uh, I did say a lot of things that um, upset some people in my age. And I think there was a, 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 a nine out there that uh, was sort of passive-aggressive. And rather than confront me, he's the one that created the picture that you see in the bulletin. I, I don't think I really looked quite that bad. I know he's a handsome guy, but I looked like I had drinking some pretty bad lemonade that day or something. So, uh, I, again, I... I don't get the sense of everything I've read about me ever matching that picture. So I just wanted to set the story straight. So before I really get into my life, though, I think it's better to go back to the 13th and 14th century uh, when I lived. And uh, as you know in your bulletins, it says I was born in 1260 and died in 1328. Um, that period of time, you know, is called the late Middle Ages. Um, and I, I'm okay with you guys calling it the late Middle Ages. You know, you had the Roman Empire, which was pretty amazing in its day. And you have today, which is an amazing time, and there is a middle period, and I can live with that. What, what kind of irks me is the uh, term that some of people are coined is calling it the Dark Ages. And uh, I see these pictures of the sky being gray, everything being in black and white, and everybody towing in fields and... Just sort of a miserable period. Uh, the word almost meaning inferior times. And I just don't think that's really fair. Uh, we were actually pretty um, modern in our own right. Probably be more fair to, to depict it more like a third world country would be there today. 
So we didn't have all the luxuries you have, and we didn't have all these fancy cell phones and you know, all this great technology and the standard of living you had today. Our standard of living was kind of tough, and we had high, you know, our birth rate wasn't very good, and we had very high literacy, illiteracy. Uh, you got to give us a break, though, because the printing press hadn't even been invented yet, so, you know, it, it, it was what it was. Um, but it wasn't like as bleak and as dark and miserable as I think historians originally had painted it. You know, we had families too. We loved our children. We uh, wanted to learn about getting closer to God. We were, I think, studies have shown that we were as happy and unhappy as people are today. So I don't think it's fair to say, well, you're Meister Eckhart. You came from a time that's totally irrelevant. This is irrelevant as it can be. People are people throughout the ages. And uh, I wanted to stress that. Um, I do want to say that um, my time came after Francis of Assisi's. He was about a century before me. And he had to deal with the Crusades and the craziness of that time. And uh, Julian of Norwich had to deal with, uh, and others had to deal with the Black Death. And that came after. So you say, well, Doug, I mean, Doug, well. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, <laughs> Meister, you, uh, you had it pretty good. And in some respects, that's true. But we had a lot of crazy things going on in our own right, too. We had... Um, a lot of population explosion. A lot of people were moving to the cities. And just in Germany in my lifetime where I lived a lot of the times, I lived in France and in Germany, the population increased uh, about 80%, something like that. And in some of the towns I was, the actual population increased by a factor of 10. So people were really crowding in there. And at the same time... Um, since really the Roman Empire, the money system started coming back into play. You know, people for a while just had to borrow and get by. It was rather primitive. And in that way, maybe earned the term of the Middle Ages and mediocre age or whatever. But we were getting pretty sophisticated. And, and so there was some good of that. Uh, money was able to buy, build great cathedrals and great things. But you had the haves and the has-nots. You had people that really were wealthy and people that were really impoverished. And this was a time where I really noticed all that. Um, I have everything in German and Latin. Okay, here it is. <laughs> um, but despite all that, um, there was some pessimism at that time uh, in my period. Uh, people were starting to get convinced that the world was getting worse, that uh, maybe we were in on the eve of the last days, and that, um, you know, just... Uh, Politicians were, were crooked, they didn't really care, and children were getting more ungrateful and unruly, uh, adults more selfish and absorbed, uh, people just getting corrupt, Hi religious leaders at times becoming hypocritical. I don't know if you can relate to that, but there's something we were, <laughs> we were kind of dealing with that. And so now I'm going to transition um, from that, you know, at least I, I want to give you a picture of the history. Where was I at the time? So I was lucky enough to be born rather wealthy. My dad was a, my father was a, a, a knight. And uh, so I had it pretty good. I'd do um, all the good stuff that a wealthy person would do. I'd get to go horse, horseback riding and hunting, and uh, I learned Latin, and I'd do uh, other book learnings. Um, we'd play backgammon and chess. Um, I guess one thing that I never was good at, 
apparently was music. Um, so I think that's why I was kind of touched by the song uh, this morning. So maybe it spoke to me. But that's one thing I've never... Uh, I guess I wasn't very photogenic and I didn't sing well. But. <laughs> uh, I also learned uh, manners and country etiquette and, and courtly etiquette. I had... Um, this kind of helped me later in doing administrative duties and the things I, I had to do. And as we were growing up and we were having this time, we as kids, uh, I, I know maybe today you kids would want to be astronauts or sports figures. Back then, we kind of identified with King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, believe it or not. We, looked, we liked that kind of heroic um, aspects. And we... Um, you know, that was one of the things that spoke to us. So as, a, as I had, like, choices in my life, which was pretty good. I, I could have been a merchant, uh, you know, which was very, you know, well-paying. But, of course, that had its negatives. It took you away from home a lot. Uh, I could have been a knight, but, you know, sounds glamorous, but knights do get killed. And, you know, it wasn't exactly the greatest profession. But I'm sure these were the kinds of things that uh, my friends uh, got into, and there were choices but I was called to the ministry. I think it was just because I started really having a heart for all this stuff that was going on. And uh, so about 16 or so, um, I ended up getting involved with the Dominican Order. Now, just to understand, you've probably heard there's two orders out there, at least that I know of. The main ones are Franciscan and Dominican. And Francis talked to you about how he started the uh, Franciscan Order. And mine was more in the Dominican order. And the Dominican order was known to be very intellectual, uh, as I understand it, while the Franciscans were more earthly and more in touch with the people and more action-oriented. So I started out with the uh, doing the Dominican stuff. And it was actually a pretty... Um, pretty rigorous kind of training. Even to get into the school, I had to be interviewed by three brothers. And if I didn't know, they really grilled me on my Latin, and I learned otherwise. If I hadn't my Latin skills and certain skills, I wouldn't have made it. So they were very, very demanding of who got in and who got out. And it turned out the people that did have the aristotic background and the the, the education in the Latin did get in. And I was in a class of like just about 50 people. Uh, and it, w it was very rigorous. I learned uh, logic, theology, the Bible, how to preach. Um, again, I think sometimes people don't think that we had universities in our day. But we did. We had some very prestigious schools. And these were really uh, good schools. And I, I learned a lot. And I also was impressed with the way the teaching was. The prior, who was the guy in charge, he would actually have dinner with us. He would actually be one of us. There was this level of equality that no matter who you were, um, it was okay. You were at the same level. And I carried this throughout my life, this sense of equality. Just because I was a famous preacher and a famous religious leader, I never got to, it never got to my head. I, I always wanted to be with the people. So that's the kind of thing I did like. Um, what I didn't like was some of the things where they would get into actually physical punishment of people that didn't hold the line. I totally disagree with that. I went away from that. Also... In time, I got away from some of the teaching that was very uh, hell and brimstone. Believe it or not, we had that in our day, that people were, were very unworthy. Um, so we have all that, and we have the uh, church. 
I want to drop back on what the church was doing. So as I was, I grew up, again, being taught of the church. But then as time went on, I started going, I don't know about this. And what the church was doing was they were, they were um, pushing um, a certain theology. And let me backdrop that. I, I, I would say about two centuries before I uh, was born, we had the great schism of the Eastern and Western Church. And the Eastern Church had some of the beauty of what Christ was teaching. And as Dave touched on early on about the mysticism, about what was Jesus really teaching to the uh, first century Jews. Unfortunately, when the Western and Eastern split, some of that got lost. And the church was somewhat into, well, we know you're kind of sort of forgiven, sort of forgiven, you know. I don't know what sort of forgiven means, but this is what they kind of did. But it's not quite enough to be forgiven by Jesus or forgiven in any way. You, you actually still had to do penance and purgatory, and you build up this problem. So you really needed to be praying and doing all these things to kind of get yourself out of this predicament that you got yourself into. Because, you're, again, you're not really forgiven. And, and I think also there was this portrayal of God as an angry God, a little bit like your, you know, this picture I saw of Ayatollah Khomeini. You know, is, you know, I think it was sort of the image we had of God in some of the churches. So people were therefore dependent on the church. And, in fact, the church was pushing this thing called indulgences, which meant... Well, we know you're working. We know you need some prayer time. Uh, we're here to help you, you know. You give us a little money and a little this and a little that. We'll pray for you. And we'll help you kind of get rid of these sins, you know. So it wasn't necessarily the church was exactly teaching the kind of thing I wanted. And um, this was a problem for me early on. But the plight of the poor continued to speak to me. And I started growing in my statue. And, and people started sending me to universities, and, and I won't bore you with the details, but I was put in charge of a lot of different uh, churches and, and um, teaching institutions, and I became pretty powerful in that I could start kind of saying what I wanted to say and not fear. So when I started out early, I had to be a little careful and you know, toe the line. But as I got a little more confident and a little more powerful, I could start pushing the envelope a little bit. So um, there are a lot of things that influenced me through the years, but one of the things that was kind of interesting was I had to deal with a problem the church had, and it was these free-spirited nuns. And they were aristocratic nuns, and they kind of, you know, sometimes pushed the envelopes of what people didn't like to hear. And they said, Meister Eckert, you solved this. You put me in charge of it, you know? So I'm going, oh, my gosh, Okay. Well, there were so many good things that came out of that, and as it turned out. Um, first of all, I, um, you know, I engaged these nuns, and I would preach to them, and they were very bright, and they were very receptive. And first of all, it helped me understand the women's rights better, and women being intelligent and viable. And it was so refreshing because, unfortunately, at the time of the Middle Ages, there weren't a lot of options. You could be, like I said, maybe you could become a merchant, maybe you could become a knight, but probably hard to do those. Some people actually wanted to be in the church or the priesthood because it was kind of a lucrative thing. If you're out there handling confessions and exchanging money, 
it's kind of a desirable position. So some of the people I would deal with were, were not in it for the spiritual sense. They were in it just for themselves, and I didn't like that. But the nuns, they were really, really excited. And uh, so they, they helped me a lot. Um, I actually learned from them. And one of the great things they did um, is they actually were pretty smart. I could go pretty high level with them. They actually recorded all my sermons to them. So there's like 100, 150 sermons that were collected. A lot of my sermons weren't collected. Um, unfortunately, the sermons to the people that I'm going to get into were not collected. Uh, so that's that's too bad. But that was kind of uh, impressive. So that's kind of some of the good things um, about that. Um, one of the things I think as I transition now, um, again, I wanted to kind of go back and, first of all, you understand the medieval times weren't as bad as what they were. And I wanted you to understand that as I grew, I started growing outside my strict Dominican guidelines. In fact, I'm known uh, by many will say that I was both Dominican and Franciscan. I had the egghead or the intellectual understanding, and I was known to have a really fantastic understanding of the of the um, Bible. I would really, though, take that and go way outside, and people would start scratching their head. But I had a really strong desire to touch the people, and, and just like the Franciscans. So I tried to mix uh, both up in, in all that. And a big desire of mine was to just help people. I mean, wow. If we can get to where Dave was saying about, you know, being close to God and um, being able to sing all is well with my soul, I mean, wow, wouldn't that be incredible? But that was very hard to do for the person that had been brought up in the hell and the brimstone and working and feeling bad and feeling all that. So Eckhart really, again, he wanted to figure out how to help the people. And as I mentioned, the challenge was, well, how do I do that? I was talking to nuns where I was talking to certain people. Now I'm talking to Germans who are peasants. They don't really understand some of this stuff. And, again, there's no words. I mean, it's hard enough today with a sophisticated English language. If you imagine having a German language that doesn't even support the Latin words that convey the meaning. So he would sometimes use building blocks of words together. And he would do everything he could to convey that communication. So um, he would say things like, if God gave me anything outside of his will, I would disregard it. And people say, what do you mean about that? If God gave me anything outside of his will, I would disregard it. And I just meant that it's all God's will. We're in, in, in with God. Um, one of the things I get to be a little problematic, though, is I could get kind of... I mean, I wasn't... I don't think that bad, but maybe I was. I would be a little dismissive of some of my contemporary... or my some other people. I would just um, maybe, maybe say things... Um, I would say something I've been quoted as saying this, that I have been asked to make my meaning clear, and I will do so although it is in opposition to all masters now living. Okay, well, how does that go over? You know. <laughs> so again, I was willing, again, at some point in my life, as time went on, to, to go to these places. And I'll touch on some of that. Um, 
he would marvel how some priests, learned men with pretensions to eminence, are so easily satisfied and are misled by those words that our Lord spoke. All I have heard from my Father, I have revealed to you. And they want to take this and declare that he has revealed it to us on the way, just as much as um, we need our eternal uh, bliss. But I, anyway, I would go on to say, this is crazy. I don't accept that. I just won't, you know, things aren't clear sometimes. The whole point is that God isn't clear. And I would go on to do this. There was usually, um, there was these cookbook ways of obtaining salvation. The church kind of said, well, you have to do this, you have to do the sacraments. There were two big things out there, and I won't go into it because it would knock you all out. Uh, Bonaventure and other Franciscans would talk about certain ways of getting to God. And I don't want to go into that. But I would talk about a third way that was seeing God without means in his own being. We would see God in ourselves. And I'll, I'll go into that in a minute. Um, so hopefully you're following me so far as I get into some of the more exact teachings. Um, let me see. Talked about this. Let's go to the stuff. So... One thing I've tried to do is I tried to use words to explain how far God is. And people were on a journey looking for God, and they wanted to find God. So it was almost like the person came in there with a map, you know, and he opens up the map, and he's looking at the stars, and he's saying, I'm trying to find God. I can't, I'm trying to find him on this map, and he starts, you know, trying to do the journey. And just putting it out and looking at the stars and trying to say, where, where is God? Where is God? And I would say, you know, well, hold on here. God is at hand. God is here. In fact, I am as sure as I live that nothing is so near to me as God. God is nearer to me than I am to myself. My existence depends on the near, nearness in the presence of God. God is at home. It is I who have gone for a walk. God, or he, I'd say, God is at home. We are in the far country. There is no need to look for God here or there. He is no farther away from the door of your heart. Or I would say, when we go to fetch God, we're making a mistake. Well, why are you going to fetch God? Well, you, God is already there. You don't need to go fetch God. You don't need to find God. Before transformation, you pray to God. But after transformation, you pray through God. So I would try to explain to people who felt so discouraged at times that God wasn't so far away. God loved them. God was right there, right there obtainable. In the here and now, I would talk about, uh, and they would get, they'd give me those starry-eyed looks sometimes, but uh, above space and time. Well, it's hard enough talking 21st century about space and time. Can you imagine a 13th century audience? I mean, space and time, what are you talking about? But I was trying to explain the power of just being here and now. You care, not yesterday, not worry, not laments, not worry tomorrow, being here and being God is here. God isn't far away. He is not on that map. So I would talk about, first of all, the nearness of God. And we could spend an hour on that, and we don't have that time. But I just wanted to touch on that I would speak to that. One thing that I did speak to, and I'm going to speak today on, is trying to be in the right place, in the right mindset, and learning to be uh, having this quiet, contemplative way of life, this um, 
this way of being content with what you have. Being content that you don't know God. And I used all kinds of various symbolism to drive that home. Um, I would say things that would be like, God is everywhere. Both we and a stick are in God's presence. But what separates us from the stick is that we are aware we are in God's presence and the stick is not. People are like, what? You know. But he was speaking that God is here. God is next to us. Um, I tell you the truth. Any object you have in your mind, however good, will be a barrier between you and the inner truth. He would talk about God being... um, He would also talk a, a lot about, well, who is God? You're trying to relate to God, but who is God? So he talked about two things, and and again, a lot of this is going to be uh, quick. But God, he would talk about sometimes what God is not. He would talk about pray to God's what the God that is not, so you can understand the God who is, or things of this sort. In other words, he would have you try to think outside of putting God in a box. He went on to even say, and this again is the language he would use. He would again try to really relate to his audience. He says. God is not a cow who gives you milk and dairy products. You know, God is not something like that tangible and is sort of somebody that's giving you something to you. He would be very blunt with his language. Sometimes he would go out of his way to be a little shocking, just to drive the point home. God is not this. God is not that. The only way you can kind of understand who God is is by eliminating the false gods in your mind. God is not... He always told Khomeini, he's not an angry God. He's not somebody sitting on the throne. He's here. So he would talk a lot about mystical language in, in, in sermons that could go on for hours about what God is not and what God is. He would talk a lot about the, or I would talk a lot about the inner peace and how really to find God, I would ask people to basically close their eyes to the worries of the world, the things of the world, and I would actually talk about darkness. Now, when you hear darkness, you think, oh, darkness, that's bad. No, I would say darkness is good. And darkness in that you are closing your eyes to the things of the world. And that closing your eyes to the things of the world was, in a way, dark. And only once you close your eyes to your worries of the future, your regrets of the past, to the lust of what you need and money and all these things. Once you got things dark, then you could see God. I would then go off and I I would use a story. You all know the story of Saul on the way to Damascus. Damascus, and, and you know the traditional story that he's persecuting Jesus and he, um, in the desert or in, onto Damascus, he gets blinded and he cannot see. And he's he's sees nothing but darkness. And then I would teach that, there you go. Now you can finally see God. Now you can finally see God. You weren't seeing God before because obviously you were doing all these things. Now you've seen God. You're not seeing the world. Now you can do the duties I need you to do. And um, so he would try to tell use the Bible in a, in a different way. He would um, tell other stories about uh, how important it was to have this presence during your life, the just this quiet, meditative way. But, of course, we can't all just sit in a um, monastery and, and contemplate on God. I mean, that would be great. 
but people in this day had to earn a living. I mean, it was it was tough times. So he was he was trying to explain how is it that you can work and live and do your life and be kind of contemplative. Can you be contemplative? Do you have to just do it at a quiet time for hours and hours, or can you do it throughout your life? And he went on to go to the story, the famous story of Mary and Martha. And many of you heard the story, uh, I think it's in your bulletins, where, um, you know, Martha invites, opens up her house to Jesus and the, the disciples, and she's serving, and she's working, and she's doing all this stuff, and Mary's just sitting there kind of listening. And Martha's saying, you know, Lord, can't I, uh, can I get a little help here? And people may misread that as because Jesus says, no, Mary's doing the right thing. She's listening to me. And people may have take that away that Mary was right. She's kind of doing the monastery kind of approach. But that uh, uh, Martha, we had it all wrong. Martha was bad, you know. Martha missed, missed it, you know. Well, I went on to say, no, 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 that's not what he said at all. You misunderstand the intent. If you go back to the passage, you will say that he says, Martha, Martha. He repeats Martha twice. He's emphasizing how much he loved her, how much he was so impressed by her work. Um, He wasn't knocking her at all. He was almost supporting her in her mature way of trying to be contemplative in, uh, in all she does. And we have our John the Baptist in the back who we know has a wonderful serving heart. And John the Baptist will sometimes um, give up doing things because he's serving. But we know that that still blesses us all. And it's the same story, that we can live our lives and still be blessed even though uh, you know we're doing this. Um, there's another story I would tell, and that would be um, another twist. And it would be the story, the famous story where uh, Mary and Joseph, when Jesus is about 12, lose Jesus. Okay? And, you know, they don't know where to find him. And they, um, you know, know, finally discover that. And he analogizes this to how we lose this touch with God ourselves. That we're trying to keep meditative. We're trying to do all the right things. And all of a sudden, we lose it. We just say, like, wait a minute, I I don't get it. And we get the worries. The world take over. Well, the same way that they kind of lost Jesus, we kind of lose Jesus, too. And they found Jesus where? They found Jesus back at the temple with his father. And um, it's telling me to get ready to stop pretty soon. (laughs) These electronic devices are kind of amazing. But again, he would use... He would use the, the Bible in a very different way. He, instead of the conventional stories in the corny way, he would say, just like they found Jesus back and he was with his father, you can go back to the temple and find God again. You can get it straight. So he was always trying to give people encouragement. And uh, he, he really cared about things. He would always use these very difficult passages, you know, either a man must find God in his works or abandon all works. But since a man in this life cannot be without his works, he must learn to possess God in all things. Again, he's stressing you can be a working person and you can find God. So um, lots and lots and lots of teachings we could get into. And uh, I will not get into everything. 
But uh, I want to make sure there's not anything else. One of my famous sayings, by the way, is the eye with which I see God is the same same eye which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, and one love. And that's really just talking about how if we get intertwined more with God and we bring God, allow us to be in God's presence, then we can actually see God and he can see us through the same eye. And it's talking about that connection. There is even saying God only loves himself. People say, what, he doesn't love me? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God, by getting into God's graces and God loving God, God will love you. Unfortunately, what happened is I would say these things, trying to use these broken words and all that, and some people, first of all, were jealous. They didn't like what I had to say. Um, this is going against the church. I mean, the church is, again, trying to as a business, and I'm kind of saying, well, you don't really need the church. You can find God directly. That didn't go over well. Uh, I would say things that people just didn't understand. And you know what happens when you take things out of context. Well, that's what happened. So jealous people and misinformed people took me to uh, Pope John the 22nd, I believe, and uh, a little foggy a few hundred years ago. But uh, And they were trying to um, discipline me or you know burn me at the stake or do, do whatever they were going to do. And I had my last years were very, very tough. And uh, some believe I died of a broken heart. Some will go even to say that maybe something worse happened to me. Um, I will just say that um, the final years were tough, and I was not held in great respect. And there was a ruling after I died that um, I was um, a heretic, only because I was preaching things that weren't accepted. And uh, I didn't get my wings and all this kind of stuff. And... Uh, but there's a new movement now that is looking at my teachings in a much better light and, and, and a better understanding. So uh, I think all is well. It was an interesting time. So uh, that's it. And now I'm going to switch. <laughs> I'm going to become Doug again. <laughs> I just said I chose Meister Eckert. Uh, after choosing him, I go, what did I do? Because he was extremely difficult to understand. Um, now I think I'm just starting to understand him. But he was very, very much the person I said. Um, actually, a lot of the write-ups weren't, aren't all that great. I read some write-ups that just seemed to, to miss it. But I think what really uh, was interesting is to learn that he was really, really smart, really educated. He was really a superstar in his day, and that he bridged both the Franciscan and the Dominicans, and he really cared about people. He really would do everything. He would just be like I am almost now. He would speak to the people and just say, you know, on the way here, I was thinking about this. And he would be very, he again, that equality thing was really big with him. And it kind of taught me about how important it is to, you know, not only into, uh, to, to talk about these in a intellectual sense, but to do what Dave's saying is to actually put him in your heart and live it. To live the point where you really understand that God is not far away, that he's loving. You can connect to God. And you have to think about it in, in different ways. Because if you use our Western thinking brain like an engineer to, you know, 
you will never get there. You have to learn to be content of not knowing everything, and that's okay. Because if you know God, He's not what uh, God worth knowing. You're, of course, you're not going to know God. You're not going to know everything. And just to be content with that and understand the love. And uh, so, anyway, that's kind of what I took away from it. And uh, just wanted to share that at the end. Thanks. Thanks.